Well, hello, and welcome, dear friend, to Short Stories, a production of AdventuresInAudio.net. I'm Robert Crandall, and I hope you are well. It's been an unusual couple of weeks for me, having died. Yes, I was victim of a terrible accident in which I was run over by a bus, a pickup truck, and a train while bungee jumping. I tell you, nothing ever goes right for me. (laughs) So I can't keep a straight face through this. (laughs) So, yes, so if, so if I am dead, how am I recording this episode? Well, you see, I came back through a seance. And so here I am dead, but through the miracle of a seance, I am able to be with you. Isn't this exciting? Well, okay, you probably figured out that my account of my death is pure fiction. Yeah. Do you think a seance is pure fiction? Do you believe in seances? (laughs) Have you ever participated in a seance? I have, and nothing happened as far as I was concerned. But another guy got up and ran out of the room. So, what if you could come back to life in this world through a seance? And what if this procedure became widespread? In our feature story, a man who has been dead for four years comes back to life through a seance. An interesting story indeed with a very disturbing ending. And speaking of something disturbing, we have a listener nightmare. And this is sent in by Brett of Las Vegas. And he writes, I dreamed that I was walking through an inner city apartment complex and it was stiflingly hot that day. Well, I'm walking through this alley between two apartment buildings, and I'm on a sidewalk. Then this big car with a noisy muffler starts creeping up to my left, and I can hear shouting from inside the car. I can't really hear what's being said, but the car gets a little ahead of me. And a guy leans out the window and says, I just don't like that guy. All of a sudden, I hear a loud series of bangs. And I feel a blast of hot air. And just like that, the car's gone. Now it's really still. My ears are ringing. And through it all, I hear a child crying. It's a weak cry, as if the child was injured. And then I feel the child drunkenly bump into me. My, my first thought is, oh no, this kid's been shocked. Then a bunch of people run out of one of the apartments and I'm frantically yelling that the child's been shot and I need help. A woman walks over to me and yells at me to pick up the kid. I pick up what I think's a little girl and she's coated in blood and it's running down her face and clothes. 
I almost dropped the kid because my thoughts are now reaffirmed and I'm flipping out. I yell at the lady to take the kid because I can't deal with it. She takes the kid and I get on my phone and call 911. The operator's asking me all kinds of questions and I'm trying not to lose my cool. Eventually, she said they'd be sending someone. And while we're waiting, the child's cries are getting weaker and weaker. Nobody ever came. And I woke up. The dream rattled me so bad I had to jump on Facebook and post about it. It took me a couple of hours before I was actually able to go back to sleep. So there's my nightmare. Sweet dreams, Brett. Well, <laughs> what a terrifying nightmare. Bloody and a child dying. Do you have a nightmare to share with us? Send it to myhorribledream at gmail.com. And now, it's time for our feature story, Back From That Born, by Edward Page Mitchell. A strange story from Pocock Island a materialized spirit that will not go back. The first glimpse of what may yet cause very extensive trouble in the world. We are permitted to make extracts from a private letter which bears the signature of a gentleman well known in business circles and whose veracity have never heard called in question. Ill's statements are startling and well-nigh incredible but if true, they are susceptible of easy verification. Yet the thoughtful mind will hesitate about accepting them without the fullest proof, for they spring upon the world a social problem of stupendous importance. The dangers apprehended by Mr. Malthus and his followers become remote and commonplace by the side of this new and terrible issue. The letter is dated at Pocock Island, a small township in Washington County, Maine, about 17 miles from the mainland and nearly midway between Mount Desert and the Grand Marion. The last state census accords to Pocock Island a population of 311, mostly engaged in the porgy fisheries. At the presidential election of 1872, the island gave Grant a majority of three. These two facts are all that we are able to learn of the locality from sources outside of the letter already referred to. The letter omitting certain passages which refer solely to private matters read as follows, But enough of the disagreeable business that brought me here to this bleak island in the month of November. I have a singular story to tell you. After our experience together at Chittenden, I know you will not reject statements because they are startling. My friend, there is upon Pocock Island a materialized spirit which, or who, refuses to be dematerialized. At this moment, and within a quarter of a mile from me as I write, a man who died and was buried four years ago 
and who has exploited the mysteries beyond the grave, walks, talks, and holds intercourse with the inhabitants of the island, and who is to all appearances determined to remain permanently upon this side of the river. I will relate the circumstances as briefly as I can. John Newbegin. In April 1870, John Newbegin died and was buried in the little cemetery on the landward side of the island. Newbegin was a man of about 48, without family or near connections, and eccentric to a degree that sometimes inspired questions as to his sanity. What money he had earned by many seasons fishing upon the banks was invested in quarters of two small mackerel schooners, the remainder of which belonged to John Hodgden, the richest man on Pocock, who was estimated by good authorities to be worth thirteen or fourteen thousand dollars. Newbegin was not without a certain kind of culture. He had read a good deal of the odds and ends of literature and as a simple-minded islander expressed it in my hearing, knew more bookfuls than anybody else on Pocock. He was naturally an intelligent man, and he might have attained influence in the community had it not been for his utter aimlessness of character, his indifference to fortune, and his consuming thirst for rum. Many yachtsmen, who have had occasion to stop at Pocock for water or for harbor shelter during eastern cruises, will remember a long, listless figure, astonishingly attired in blue army pants, rubber boots, loose toga made of some bright chintz material, and very bad hat, staggering through the little settlement, followed by a rabble of cheering brats, and pausing to strike uncertain blows at those within reach of the dead sculpin, which he usually carried around by the tail. This was John Newbegin. His Sudden Death As I have already remarked, he died four years ago last April. The Mary Emmeline, one of the little schooners in which he owned, had returned from the eastward, and had smuggled or run in a quantity of St. John brandy. Newbegin had a solitary and protracted debauch. He was missed from his accustomed walks for several days, and when the islanders broke into the hovel where he lived, close down to the seaweed, and almost within reach of the incoming tide, they found him dead on the floor, with an empty demijohn hard by his head. After the primitive custom of the island, they interred John Newbegin's remains without coroner's inquest, burial certificate, or funeral services, and in the excitement of a large catch of porgies that summer, soon forgot him and his friendless life. His interest in the Mary Emmeline and the putty boat recurred to John Hodgden, and as nobody came forward to demand an administration of the estate, it was never administered. The forms of the law are but loosely followed in some of these marginal localities. His reappearance at Pocock. Well, my dear, four years and four months had brought their quota of varying seasons at Pocock Island when John Newbegin reappeared under the following circumstances.
In the latter part of last August, as you may remember, there was a heavy gale along our Atlantic coast. During this storm, the squadron of the Naugatuck Yacht Club, which was returning from a summer cruise as far as Campobello, was forced to take shelter in the harbor to the leeward of Pocock Island. The gentlemen of the club spent three days at the little settlement ashore. Among the party was Mr. R. E., in which name you will recognize a medium of celebrity, and one who has been particularly successful in materializations. At the desire of his companions, and to relieve the tedium of their detention, Mr. E. improvised a cabinet in the little schoolhouse at Pocock, and gave a seance to the delight of his fellow yachtsmen, and the utter bewilderment of such natives as were permitted to witness the manifestations. The conditions seemed unusually favorable to spirit appearances, and the seance was, upon the whole, perhaps the most remarkable that Mr. E. ever held. It was all the more remarkable, because the surroundings were such that the most prejudiced skeptic could discover no possibility of trickery. The first form to issue from the wood closet, which constituted the cabinet, when Mr. E. had been tied therein by a committee of old sailors from the yachts, was that of an Indian chief who announced himself as Hakama, and who retired after dancing a harvest moon pasol, and declaring himself, in very emphatic terms, opposed to the present Indian policy of the administration. Hakamak was succeeded by the aunt of one of the yachtsmen, who identified herself beyond question by allusion to family matters and by displaying the scar of a burn upon her left arm received while making tomato ketchup upon earth. Then came successfully a child whom no one present recognized, a French-Canadian who could not talk English, and a portly gentleman who introduced himself as William King, first governor of Maine. These, in turn, re-entered the cabinet and were seen no more. It was some time before another spirit manifested itself, and Mr. E. gave directions that the light be turned down still further. Then the door of the wood closet was slowly opened, and a singular figure in rubber boots and a species of Dolly Varden garment emerged, bringing a dead fish in his right hand. His Determination to Remain The city men who were present I am told, thought that the medium was masquerading in grotesque abelements for the more complete astonishment of the islanders. But these latter rose from their seats and exclaimed with one consent, It is John Newbegin. It is Johnny, for certain. And then, in not an unnatural terror at the apparition, 
they turned and fled from the schoolroom, uttering dismal cries. John Newbegin came calmly forward and turned up the solitary kerosene lamp that shed uncertain light over the proceedings. He then sat down in the teacher's chair, folded his arms, and looked complacently around. You might as well untie the medium. He at length remarked, I propose to remain in the materialized condition. And he did remain. When the party left the schoolhouse, among them walked John Newbegin, as truly a being of flesh and blood as any man of them. From that day to this, he has been a living inhabitant of Pocock Island, eating, drinking, water only, and sleeping after the manner of men. The yachtsman who made sail for Bar Harbor that very next morning probably believed that he was a fraud, hired for the occasion by Mr. E. But the people of Pocock, who laid him out, dug his grave, and put him into it four years ago, know that John Newbegin has come back to them from a land they know not of. A Singular Member of Society The idea of having a ghost somewhat more condensed, it is true, than the traditional ghost, as a member was not at first overpleasing to the 311 inhabitants of Pocock Island. To this day they are a little sensitive upon the subject, feeling evidently that if the matter got abroad, it might injure the sale of the really excellent porgy oil, which is the product of their sole manufacturing interests. This reluctance to advertise the skeleton in their closet superadded to the slowness of these obtuse, fishy, matter-of-fact people to recognize the transcendent importance of the case must be accepted as an explanation of the fact that John Newbegin's spirit has been on earth between three and four months, and yet the singular circumstance is not known to the whole country. But the Pocockians have at last come to see that a spirit is not necessarily a malevolent spirit, and, accepting his presence as a fact in their stolid, unreasoning way, they are quite neighborly and sociable with Mr. Newbegin. I know that your first impression will be, is there sufficient proof of his ever having been dead? To this I answer unhesitatingly, Yes. He was too well known a character and too many people saw the corpse to admit of any mistake on this point. I may here add that it was at one time proposed to disinter the original remains, but that the project was abandoned in deference to the wishes of Mr. Newbegin, who feels a natural delicacy about having his first set of bones disturbed from motives of mere curiosity. An Interview with a Dead Man You will readily believe that I took occasion to see and converse with John Newbegin. I found him affable and even communicative. He is perfectly well aware of his doubtful status as a being, 
but is in hopes that at some future time there may be legislation which shall correctly define his position and the position of any spirit who may follow him into the material world. The only point upon which he is reticent is his experience during the four years that elapsed between his death and his reappearance at Pocock. It is to be presumed that the memory is not a pleasant one. At least he never speaks of this period. He candidly admits, however, that he is glad to get back to earth and that he embraced the very first opportunity to be materialized. Mr. Newbegin says that he is consumed with remorse for the wasted years of his previous existence. Indeed, his course during the past three months would show that this regret is genuine. He has discarded his eccentric costume and dresses like a reasonable spirit. He has not touched liquor since his reappearance. He has embarked in the porgy oil business, and his operations already rival those of Hodgden, his old partner in the Mary Emmeline and the putty boat. By the way, Newbegin threatens to sue Hodgden for his undivided quarter in each of these vessels, and this interesting case therefore bids fair to be thoroughly investigated in the courts. As a businessman, he is generally esteemed on the island, although there is a noticeable reluctance to discount his paper at long dates. In short, Mr. John Newbegin is a most respected citizen, if a dead man can be a citizen, and has announced his intention of running for the next legislature. In Conclusion I have told you the substance of all I know respecting this strange, strange case. Yet after all, why so strange? We accepted materialization at Chittenden. Is this any more than the logical issue of that admission? If the spirit may return to earth clothed in flesh and blood and all the physical attributes of humanity, why may it not remain on earth as long as it sees fit? Thinking of it from whatever standpoint, I cannot but regard John Newbegin as the pioneer of a possibly large immigration from the spirit world. The bars once down, a whole flock will come trooping back to earth. Death will lose its significance altogether. And when I think of the disturbance which will result in our social relations, of the overthrow of all accepted institutions, and of the nullification of all principles of political economy, law, and religion, I am lost in perplexity and apprehension. You've been listening to Back from the Born by Edward Page Mitchell and a listener nightmare from Brett of Las Vegas and some foolishness. 
William Kingdon Clifford once said, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Please take care. Thank you.